listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. I guarantee you, in fact, I'd bet my last dollar if I was a betting man, that you need to hear from God in this particular message today. In fact, you're going to hear from God today. In fact, you're not just going to hear from God. There's people here today who are going to be set free. You're going to be set free today in your walk with God. Some of you have been walking with God for a while, but you're stuck. You're stuck in a rut. God's going to set you free today. Others of you don't even know why you really came. I can tell you, you didn't come for the coffee. Have you realized that? You didn't come for the coffee? You came because you needed to hear from God. You're going to hear from God, and God has hope for you. He's got freedom for you. He's going to set you free today. A lack of holiness will keep you from seeing God in the life to come. It'll also keep you from seeing God here and now. A lack of holiness will keep you from seeing God in the life to come, and it'll keep you from seeing God here and now. We could say it this way, personal holiness is absolutely imperative, it's absolutely important to seeing God in the life to come and seeing God in the here and now. One of the reasons why God is not showing up in some of our lives is because of a lack of holiness. God wants to show up in our lives. He wants to manifest himself in our lives. The reason why we're not seeing him and why he's not being manifest in our lives is because of a lack of holiness. Do I have your attention yet? The lack of holiness will keep you from seeing God in the life to come. It will also keep you from seeing God in the here and now. Holiness in your life is absolutely important. It's absolutely imperative that you be a man, a woman, a young man, a young woman who is holy. In fact, the Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Did you catch that? Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I'm going to start backwards today. I'm going to begin with the end. I'm going to start with the obvious. I'm going to start with the no-brainer. And then we're going to talk about the more subtle undermining things, the things that could come in our life, things that we could be experiencing in our lives right now that are undermining the presence and power of God being manifest. They're keeping you from seeing God in your life the way you otherwise would see him. And in some cases, they might even be preventing you from seeing God the way you could see him in the life to come. I'm going to begin with a hot topic called sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. See, sexual immorality is doing something with your mind or with your heart, sometimes your body, sometimes somebody else that you shouldn't be doing. It's going someplace with your mind. Going someplace with your heart where you shouldn't be. Sometimes with your body. Sometimes with somebody else. Doing things that shouldn't be done, thinking of things that shouldn't be done, treasuring things in our heart that shouldn't be done. Now, 
It's interesting that the Apostle Paul has some insight here to sexual immorality. We'll get to Esau in a second, who I think is a fascinating illustration of all the examples the Holy Spirit could have used to help us understand sexual immorality. It's significant that Esau is the one that he pulls out of his bag of tricks. But before we get there in just a moment, 1 Corinthians Look with me at God's word. The Apostle Paul had something to say here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Let's keep that right up there for a while until I'm done with this. It says this, flee from sexual immorality. The idea here is that don't just think about running away. Make sure you are to hightail it out of there. You are to make sure with absolute certainty that you're to do everything within your human ability, more importantly, everything within the, the divine ability of God to get away from sexual immorality. We are to take it with such seriousness that we are to run from sexual immorality, flee from sexual immorality. Now, Paul gives us an insight as to why we are to take sexual immorality so seriously especially here in the 21st century where sexual immorality has become so prevalent and so much second nature to our culture and our way of lifestyle, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. When you are involved with sexual immorality, you are committing suicide. Every once in a while, we'll be reading the newspaper, surfing through the web, on the internet, listening to the radio, and we'll hear about some poor soul who allowed themselves to go to a deep, dark place, and what did they do? They ended up turning a weapon against themselves, sometimes medicine against themselves, and they do what? They committed suicide. They took their own life and we shake our heads in disbelief and, and anguish over the people that they left behind and the other people that were impacted by that and we say, how sad. How terrible that that person would get to that point in their life where they would turn a weapon, turn medicine against themselves. Their vision became so clouded. Their thinking became so tainted. They couldn't see themselves in a healthy way any longer. They saw that there was no way out. They painted themselves into a corner. They took their own life, and we have great pity on those people. We should have the same attitude, spiritually speaking. When we dabble with sexual immorality, when we begin to think about sexual sin, when we begin to go someplace in our mind and in our hearts, we should run away from it. We should take it so seriously. When it's just a seed... You say, well, it's only a thought. Have you not realized that as your mind goes, so goes your body? You think somebody who's doing something with their body they shouldn't be doing didn't start thinking about it first? Jesus had something to say about this area in Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, look with me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus speaking with authority, not as the scribes, putting his own words on equal footing with the teachings of the Old Testament. That's what the Bible means when it says that Jesus taught with authority. Jesus is referencing the Old Testament. Don't commit adultery. But I say to you, putting his own words on equal footing with the law of Moses. Who could do that if he was just a mere mortal? Jesus more than a mortal. The son of God, son of man, God in the flesh. But I say to you that everyone that pretty much levels the playing field. Who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Jesus seeming very serious about sexual sin that nobody else could see in the hidden recesses of who we are. Who knows what's going on in our hearts apart from God himself. That's the whole point. On the outside, people might not know what's going on, but on the inside, that's what should concern us. That's what concerns God. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Very graphic, very serious. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Let's not explain it away. Well, is he really talking about hell? Is he really? Yes, he's serious about that. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Graphic imagery. Serious about sin, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body goes into hell. Next verse. Or is that it? It's enough. You might say to yourself, hey, you know, yes, I've gone places in my mind. I've thought about somebody else. I'm married, but I've had thoughts about somebody else. It's just emotional. It's just emotional. What are you, superhuman? Are you made up of some type of DNA that the world has not yet been come, become familiar with? It's just emotional. Amen, let's get real for a second here. Can we be honest or do you want, you want to blow smoke up each other's noses? You're starting to think and fantasize about another woman and you're married and you only have thoughts about holding hands together and buying her flowers. You're a liar, not just thinking about things and you're also lying to yourself. Do you realize you are just one decision away from wrecking your marriage, ruining somebody else's life? Do you realize you're one decision away from a dark, dangerous place, a slippery slope that you may not ever recover from? Who are you fooling? You're not fooling God. It's just emotional. Ladies, let's not pretend that it's just men that have this issue. Let's not just put all the, let's just not have the hammer come down heavy on the men. That's why Harlequin romance books are so popular. The emotional intimacy that you crave in your marriage is not happening, so you seek it elsewhere, not through a program like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. Sin, Jesus says, begins in the mind, it begins in the heart. Years ago, there was a popular song sung by some sisters, free your mind and the rest will follow. You know, it's true one way or the other. Where your mind goes, where your heart goes, so will go your body. Sexual immorality is something that's happening in your mind, something that's happening in your heart, sometimes with your body, sometimes with somebody else. And it's suicide. Wreck your life. See, in our marriages, a lot of times what's happening in our marriages is being directly affected because your spouse has checked out emotionally. Not just emotionally, checked out sexually. Don't call it just emotional, an emotional affair. What is that, an emotional affair? What did Jesus call it? Jesus said, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Well, who among us is guilty of that? I certainly am. We need to take captive the thoughts, give them to Christ. Stop allowing ourselves to be in bondage, all tied up. And then maybe we could begin to see God show up in our lives, show up in our marriage. Instead of being emotionally distant, whether you're a man or a woman, be emotionally invested in your spouse. Marriage takes work. Have you noticed that? You say, I want out. I can't believe I married this person. I want out. And it seems like the easy way out. All you're doing is you're exchanging one set of problems with your current spouse. Are you ready for this? For another set of problems with your lover, the person you're going to commit adultery with, the person you may be committing adultery with now, or the person you think is going to have greener grass. The wind blows on the grass the same way every place it is. The skies dry up, the sun fades away, the clouds dry up, the rain stops falling, the grass turns gr tur that's green turns brown. See, we're stupid. We're short-sighted. That's all we're doing when we're running from our marriage to somebody else. We're exchanging one set of problems for another inevitable set of problems. Why? Because you're dealing with two people living outside of Eden. You're dealing with two people living outside of Eden who make mistakes, who are weak and tempted and fall into temptation and make wrong choices, bad choices. And when you put two people together like that, you're bound for 
problems. That's why Jesus needs to be the center of your marriage. Jesus needs to be the center of your life. You have no power. I have no power to be the man of God in my marriage that I must be. My wife has no power to be the woman of God in my marriage that she must be apart from the power of the Holy Spirit helping her make the right choices, help me make the right choices, help me take captive my thoughts, the inclinations of my heart which are naturally evil apart from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. I need God to show up in my marriage how often? Every single day throughout the day, and you do too. You say, well, I'm not married yet. You might be one day, and the way you're taking your thoughts captive now or not taking your thoughts captive now, you're gonna bring baggage into your marriage. The baggage that you bring is going to affect whether or not you see God show up in your marriage. And we've got to take seriously this idea of personal holiness. A lack of holiness will hinder your ability to see God in the life to come. And right here, right now, you say, wait a second, that sounds like legalism to me. Who can be holy apart from Jesus? You're exactly right. That's why you need Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You need the one who knew no, knew no sin, who became sin for you. to be the one whose blood is applied to your life. That's why Jesus died on the cross. You can't do it yourself, otherwise it would be a complete waste of the life of Christ. If you could get into heaven any other way apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then Christ died for nothing. But he died for you because you needed someone to take your place. I needed somebody to take my place. I can't do it on my own. You cannot clean a dirty table with a filthy rag. You've got a sin problem. You need somebody who's without sin to remove your sin from you. You need somebody to, put, to make you holy. You were born into this world, part of the human race, an inheritor of Adam's sin, guilty on your birthday, cute and cuddly, warm and fuzzy in my case. A sinner, nonetheless, born into this world, an enemy of God because of my sin, separate from God. Physical death is evidence of spiritual death. It's proof that what God said in the garden is true. The day you eat it, you'll surely die. Adam and Eve outside of the garden, the day they ate that fruit. Spiritual death, separation from God is proven by physical death. We will all die one day, it's certain. That proves to us that the Bible is true. Physical death is evidence of spiritual death, that we are born into this world separate from God and we need to be made holy. We're not born holy, we are made holy through the death of Jesus Christ. Positional holiness, in fact we could say this, We could say this, genuine salvation, the idea of genuine salvation makes its way out. Saving faith is manifest or demonstrated by abiding faith. Saving faith is manifest or proven by abiding faith. Now we all struggle with sexual immorality. We're all nailed to the floor, so to speak, in terms of what's happening in our thought lives already, in our hearts. Jesus has already said that. But the person who is truly saved, who has saving faith, will not stay in that dark place. Somebody who's sexually immoral as a matter of characteristically in their life, they don't care about watching pornography, they don't care about what's happening in the arena of their mind, the theater of their mind, the arena of their heart, the theater of their heart, they don't care about that and they continue in sexual immorality, they continue to go down that dark place. I have to wonder, are they really saved in the first place? Because saving faith manifests itself in abiding faith. If you are truly made holy because you've given your life to Christ as your Lord and Savior, holiness should be the outgrowth of that saving faith. In fact, Oswald Chambers said it well. He said, holiness is the characteristic of the man after God's heart. That's true. 
Holiness is the characteristic of the man after God's heart. I would say the woman as well. When a person is concerned about living a holy life, it says to me that they are concerned with the work of Christ on the cross. It demonstrates to me that there really was a saving work that happened in them. When I am least concerned about holiness in my own life, it reminds me, you know, the only problem with a living sacrifice is that it has a tendency to crawl off the altar. I, like you, I get spiritual amnesia. I forget what Jesus did for me on the cross. And it's at those moments when I forget what Jesus did for me on the cross, I begin to do stupid things. Very stupid things. You know, one of my prayers of my own life is that, Lord, when I make mistakes, do not let them be so big that I cannot recover from them. Do not let them be so big that they would cause great shame to your name. That'd be a good prayer for you to pray as well because you're going to stumble at times. You're going to make wrong choices. You're going to give in to temptation. Aren't you glad that we have somebody named Jesus who, when he was tempted, did not sin on your behalf? See, that's the human condition. We need somebody to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's why he's called the Messiah, the Savior from what? The Savior from sin. The Savior from your mistakes, from your shortfalls, from the sins that you would do against God, from the things that you should be doing for God and his glory that you don't do. We need somebody who took the wrath that you and I deserve on himself, somebody who fulfilled the requirement of God. That's why when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, he did not wink after that statement. It's interesting here. I find it absolutely fascinating when we look at Genesis chapter 25 that the illustration that's used for the sexually immoral person is Esau. Look with me at Genesis chapter 25. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. See, there was an older son named Esau, a younger one named Jacob. Esau was a hunter. Jacob was a quiet man. He lived in tents. He was more, his personality was more subdued. Esau was a wild man, very hairy, much like me. Probably had to use one of those quad razors and probably broke them at that. Well, it came time for their father to bless the older one, Esau. And Jacob deceived Esau, but it's more than that. Esau gave up his birthright, and this is the story. And by the way, the whole problem in the Middle East between Arabs and Jews is traced right back to this particular passage of Scripture, Genesis 25 and Genesis 27. The reason why we're having problems in the Middle East to this day and the reason why we will always have problems in the Middle East until the day Jesus returns is right here historically because of these passages of Scripture. Genesis chapter 25, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom because the word Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Can you see the sibling rivalry here? Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Look at this. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You just get this the impression that there should be, if we were in the movie theater right now, there would be this dramatic music that would come up at that moment. Esau despised his birthright. And then we would cut, to the, scene, cut the scene to another image. Esau goes his merry way. Verse 27, or chapter 27, what do we see? Genesis chapter 27, when things come to fruition... Isaac has just been blessed by his father. As soon as Isaac had finished, in verse 30 of chapter 27 of Genesis, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting, completely oblivious of what he had done earlier, selling his birthright. He was out hunting. Men, we like to hunt, don't we? Who likes to hunt? Esau's back from his hunting trip, time to get blessed by his father. 
He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And lo and behold, his father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also. Oh, my father, he's heartbroken. He realized this is the significance of when he sold his birthright, when he was more interested in his stomach, immediate gratification. He just wanted to get his fill. He could have waited a half hour. He could have gone to Twin Pines or the equivalent Gotten something tasty to eat. By the way, I was not paid for that endorsement. Although I do enjoy the meats, the meat cuts and the chicken and the delicious cheeses that they do have over there at Twin Pines, just 100 yards from where I'm speaking right now. <laughs> An easy walk, I know it well, from the church doors right across the street, looking both ways before I cross Sometimes they have ribs. They advertise it on their marquee, the electronic sign out front, the, the ribs. And sometimes some of you like hogma. What is that? <laughs> Genesis twenty-seven thirty-five. but he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Here's the plight of a man who blew it. God's not going to show up in his life now. And he blew his eternal inheritance. He should have been the firstborn, should have been the one that received the blessing. Don't get confused here and say, well, it's because Jacob, like Esau, is put, playing the blame game. Blaming his brothers because I was deceived. No, it's not because you were deceived, knucklehead. It's because you sold your birthright in a weak moment when you were more interested in an instant gratification than you were in the long haul of obediently following God and being a man of God. All you had to do was wait a little bit and go eat some bread, get over the hunger pangs, do what was right, and you could have made the right decision. And what happened? The lack of holiness in Esau's life led him to, to completely give up the experience of God's blessing in his life, in his lifetime, for generations to come in the Arab world today. Yes, turbulence in the Middle East goes way back to these passages of Scripture and his eternal inheritance as the one who would have been blessed as the firstborn, the inheritor. By the way, Jesus' ancestry can be traced back to Jacob. Not Esau. Esau committed personal suicide by considering his belly and the immediate needs and his personal hunger in light of eternity, in light of his own well-being. And when you and I choose sexual immorality, instant gratification, as opposed to a long obedience and surrender to Jesus Christ to give us the power to do in us, with us, through us, what we can't do in of ourselves. When we choose instant gratification, we're missing God in the here and now. And for those of us who characteristically continue to make that choice, it could be evidence that you never gave your life to Christ in the first place. In the life to come, you won't see God either. Somebody's got to tell you this. Before it's too late. Somebody's got to tell us this. When I was in college, I was 
17 years old when I accepted Christ in my senior year of high school. Then I went to college. I went to Rutgers University. I didn't have any idea of what it meant to follow Christ. I got saved. I accepted Christ for fire insurance. I just wanted to get out of hell. I didn't know about walking with God. I wasn't interested in holiness. Nobody had told me, and I wasn't reading the Bible at that particular point. I went to college. I figured I'd become president of a fraternity. I would do what most young red-blooded males would do, pick up women, do my thing, and I got to college. I was on the third floor, Tinsley Dormitory, room 319 at Rutgers College. It was known throughout the whole college as being the floor for partying at Rutgers College. I ended up there. So way back in 1983, in fact, I think it was 1982, I was doing my thing. There was a girl on the floor who had a little bit much, too much to drink one particular night, therefore out of control. That's why drinking and getting drunk is so foolish. You do things that you regret later. And there were things happening in my mind and my heart prior to that. See, I was sober. She was drunk. Eventually, she makes her way into my room. Now, I could sanitize this story a little bit and make you think I'm something that I'm not, or I could be honest with you and you could identify with me as someone who's just like you. Which would you like? She's in my room and we begin to do things that we shouldn't be doing. And as we're doing these things, the thought goes through my mind, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is an evidence of genuine salvation. I get concerned if somebody doesn't have the conviction of the Holy Spirit speaking to them about areas of their life. When, when somebody tells me they don't hear God's voice, they don't feel the conviction of God, it tells me one of two things. You never accepted Christ in the first place, or you've been neglecting him and you've been, your conscience is now seared. You've been saying no to God's voice for so long that now you can no longer hear him. You need to repent deeply. And God will restore to you what? The presence and power of God. These thoughts are going through my mind right there in Tinsley 319. I'm really not enjoying this. I've got to get out of this. How do I get myself out of this? I'm not enjoying this at all. And then I kid you not, within a moment's notice, the girl pulls away from me, her face away from mine, looks at me, gets this smirk on her face and begins to laugh. And she says... <laughs> The devil wants you to think that you're enjoying this, but you're not enjoying this at all. You want to talk about cold water? I came to my senses. I pushed her away. I said, get out, get out. And she laughed with this satanic laughter as she exited my room and opened the door and went down the hallway. I could still hear her echoes of her laughter right now, mocking, defiant. You want to talk about somebody who, although I was not drunk, it was as if I was, I was brought to complete sobriety. The Holy Spirit brings cold water into your life, helping you understand, don't go down that road. Don't do that. Don't think that. Don't treasure it because as the mind goes, so will go your body. I'm so thankful for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to show me, don't go there. Don't think that. Don't follow that. You're really not enjoying that. See, holiness brings happiness. We seem to have forgotten that. You'll never be more happy than when you're holy. When you're walking in obedience to Christ, obedient, obedience brings freedom. Disobedience brings discipline. It's so simple a child can understand or our kids understand that. Oh, if only we could understand that as adults. You'll never be as happy as you could be until and unless you begin to walk in holiness, you begin to walk after God. See, sexual immorality begins in the heart, it begins in the mind, and as your mind and your heart go, so goes your body. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'm gonna commit spiritual suicide. I think I'm just gonna run my car, spiritually speaking, right over the edge. I'm gonna live life right on the precipice, see what I can get away with. You're out of your mind, literally. We're living in a day and an age where sexual immorality is so significant culturally that if you're not watching it, it's going to sneak up on you and bite you. It's going to invade your house. It's going to come right in, right under your nose. It's going to come after your children. One out of eight 
searches on the internet is for erotic information, erotic material. One out of eight searches today. 67% of children admit to clearing their internet history to hide it from their parents or guardians. You don't think kids are savvy with technology? My seven-year-old tells me how to run my iPhone. Gives me tips and tricks. 79% of accidental exposure to internet pornography among children takes place in the home. 56%, listen to this, of divorce cases involve one party having having an obsessive interest in online pornography. We've crossed the 50% mark. You don't think pornography is affecting our culture, our society? You don't think your marriage is in the crosshairs from uh, from a perspective of spiritual warfare? Of course it is. You affect marriage, the first institution created by God. You undermine marriage, the whole of civilization will go right to hell in the handbasket with it. Brilliant strategy. You've got to be on your guard. 56% of all marriages that end in divorce involve one party who's got an obsessive interest in online pornography. 29% of working adults access explicit websites on work computers. Pornography in the United States, income, revenue from pornography in the United States now exceeds the combined income of ABC, CBS, and NBC. The pornography industry is larger than the revenues of the top technology companies combined, including Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, Netflix, and Earthlink. You don't think you're a prime target for sexual immorality? You don't think you're being bombarded with thoughts that are significant to lead you astray from pure and sincere devotion to Christ? You're living in a fantasy land. This is reality of life in the 21st century. This is reality. 40 million Americans are regular viewers of pornography with one in three, one in three being women now. Some of us have been going places in our minds and our hearts we shouldn't be going to. Thank God it's only been in the mind and the heart, but it is significant and serious nonetheless according to Jesus. It's not okay. Tolerating those thoughts is just giving fuel to the fire that inevitably will rage out of control. It will go from your mind and your heart into your body and perhaps affect somebody else. It's important. And right now, in your mind and in your heart, you're in bondage. You might not have called it that. You might not have realized it, but God has spoken to you, and you realize, I'm in bondage. I've allowed myself to be duped. I'm just one decision away from making spiritual suicide. One decision away from committing spiritual suicide. You know, it's not just this area of sexual immorality that's involved in this idea of holiness. Did you catch verse 14? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace. Make it your ambition to live at peace with all people. That should be a characteristic of your life if you know Christ as your Savior. A peaceable, non-argumentative spirit is the characteristic of a person who's trying to walk in holiness. A peaceable, non-argumentative spirit is a characteristic of spiritual maturity. A peaceable, non-argumentative spirit is characteristic of a man, a woman, a boy or a girl who's walking in intimacy with God because You don't have the ability, naturally speaking, in your job, in your marriage, in the community, to have a peaceable, non-argumentative spirit in the days in which we live. There has to be a sense in which what's happening in your life is, yes, naturally it's going to upset you. It's going to tick you off. It's going to fry your circuits. But because you're intimate with God, you have a peaceable, non-argumentative, Holy Spirit way about you where other people can look at you and they could say, I can't understand 
why you're not more argumentative. I can't understand what all the garbage you're putting up within your family and your in-laws. Hello? I can't understand with, with your boss, with your financial difficulties. Why, how, how come you're not more irritated? You know why you're not more irritated? Not because you're a good person, but because you have learned the secret that intimacy with God overflows into a peaceable non-argumentative spirit. Some of us are in bondage. We're not as peaceable as we could be. We're more argumentative than we should be. It's not testosterone levels, whether you're a man or a woman. It's an intimacy with God issue. It's a holiness issue. Did you realize that? That peaceability is directly related to holiness? Did you catch that? See, there's positional holiness where we know Christ as our Lord and Savior. We've been made holy by the blood of Jesus, by personal faith in him. Then there's practical holiness where we're walking with Christ, we're abiding with him, and he begins to change the way we behave, begins to change the way we think, begins to do a mighty work in us. We're obeying him, we're surrendering to him. Did you catch this? Strive for peace with everyone and, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's serious business. A peaceable, non-argumentative spirit is the byproduct of intimacy with Christ. You will always be more peaceable and far less argumentative as you walk with Christ, as you surrender to him. Was Jesus argumentative? Did Jesus know how to entrust himself to his heavenly father in the midst of accusations? Of course he did. That's what will happen to you as a matter of holiness, which is the evidence of whether or not you really have given your life to Christ. There should be evidence in your life of whether or not you've really given your life to Christ. And it's not just in the big areas of sexual immorality. It's also in the little, more subtle areas like a peaceable non-argumentative spirit. You might say, I haven't committed sexual immorality, but are you characterized? Would your wife say that you are characterized by being peaceable? Would your husband say that you are characterized as being non-argumentative? Would your coworkers and your boss say that? Would the people in your church say that you have a peaceable, non-argumentative spirit? Now, we're great in the church at covering up the deep down issues. Because here's the third one that I want us to look at. We can cover up on the outside, make it look like, you know, we give a smile and we give the pat answers. How you doing? I'm doing great. When all hell's breaking out inside, my marriage is ready to fall apart. My boss hates me. My coworkers hate me. I'm in bondage to whatever it might be. We're great at giving the simple answers. I'm doing great. Everything's fine. When things are not fine at all, we're in a deep, dark, dangerous place. The truth is that we either deal with the root or we will eat the fruit. Look with me at verse 15. See to it. In other words, don't just think about this. Make it happen. It's a commandment. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. NIV says, misses the grace of God. That no quote unquote root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. The root of bitterness. And by it, the root of bitterness, many become defiled. You know, the lack of holiness isn't just an issue of committing suicide, it's also collateral damage. The root of bitterness causes collateral damage. I know that firsthand experience. I know. I know about roots. I know about fruit. See, back in 2006, we moved from Portland, Oregon, where it rains a lot, and the grass is green and beautiful, and you never would water your lawn in Portland, Oregon. If you watered your lawn in Portland, Oregon, people would think something's wrong with you. They'd call for a psychological mental evaluation because you don't need to water your grass in Portland, Oregon. It's green naturally. You look out the window, and it's green. You don't need to do much care and tending to your lawn in Portland, Oregon. Well, that's not the case in North Carolina. I found out that that very quickly when I had lawn envy. I moved there, and then the person to my right has a monthly lawn care service for $50 or $60 a month that comes in and takes care of all of their lawn, puts the right chemicals down at the right time, beautiful green, lush, tall fescue, 
that needs to be cut multiple times during the week because it's so beautiful and so supported. And then my neighbor on the other side beats the system, decided to beat the system, didn't have a, a monthly lawn care service, but certainly put a lot of money in, out of his own pocket where he would be out there putting the fertilizer down and doing the weed killer. Well, here I am in the middle with this, I look like a, probably an Oreo cookie with green and green and brown in the middle. That's my house. Brown in the middle. It didn't get brown that way in the beginning. It got brown because I got so frustrated with the grass that I decided to kill it all and start over again. Because there's a stuff that happens in North Carolina as you're watering your grass, the perfect amount where you put a tuna can out to make sure you're giving just the right amount of water because too much and it becomes soggy and moldy. Too little and the grass gets dry and withers up and gets brown. It drives you crazy. So thankful to be out of that part of the country. This thing called crabgrass. One day I remember going through my whole yard and taking the crabgrass out, cutting off that crabgrass and the yard, at least part of it looked so good till my back started to hurt me. And then I realized a week later the crabgrass was all back. I realized the reason why the crabgrass was back is because it might have looked good on the surface, but if I didn't deal with the root of the crabgrass, the crabgrass would take over my yard as it soon did. See, from a distance in North Carolina, you can look at somebody's yard and it looks really good, but when you get closer... And when you begin to look under the surface, you can begin to see roots that affect everything. That's what the root of bitterness does. It's not just affecting you. Do you think other people are walking around concerned that you're bitter at them? Do you think that before they say their evening prayer at their meal, oh, and bless so-and-so, I know that I really messed up their life and they're having such a hard time, they're not thinking about you but you're thinking about them because the seed was tossed and you fertilized it by revisiting the scenario in your mind again and again and again and again. And that little seed grew up to become a plant called bitterness, a root of bitterness that is now not just affecting your life, but other people's lives. I know from firsthand experience because when I was newly married, we came to this point in our marriage where my wife says to me, you know what? I don't know why you keep coming down so hard on me. It could be, you know, name your day, name the scenario. Why are you coming down so hard on me? I think you have some unresolved issues with your father. Mm-hmm. Has God ever spoken to you through your spouse where you know that your spouse is telling the truth? You just don't like, you want to shoot the messenger. My wife was absolutely right. She was collateral damage. I was defiling her because of my root of bitterness. My innocent wife, trying to love me, trying to create marital intimacy between the two of us. What was I doing? I was defiling her because the root of bitterness, I had not dealt with the root. My wife was eating the fruit. See, in the early 1990s, my parents were getting divorced. Very bitter divorce. I decided to postpone going to seminary so that I could stay home with my mother for a year and a half because there was a restraining order. There were guns involved. The police had to come to the house, remove my father from the house. My father never went back to the house. I decided before I'd go to seminary, the Holy Spirit had gotten a hold of me to a certain degree where I was walking with the Lord, beginning to experience freedom. I, I realized that I'd go to see my father and I would confront them. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead you to confront somebody. He just won't lead you to yell at somebody. So I went to my father's office at 124 West Washington Avenue in Washington, New Jersey, 07882. You can visit there if you'd like. Nobody's there anymore. I went to see my father. I said, hey, Dad. This is long before I was married. I said, you know, Dad, I don't like the way you're treating Mom and this divorce thing's getting out of control. And my dad laughed, smirked, very belligerent at that particular time in his life. And I said what I needed to say, very calm, cool, and collected. Glory to God, the Holy Spirit was moving. I turned to walk away, made my way down the hallway of his office to the front door, went to reach for the doorknob, and my dad made the mistake of making a derogatory statement about my mother. 
I can't repeat it because it was that derogatory, but I did turn around and I said, what did you just say? And he repeated it. And then my dad, my five foot five father, who was 225 pounds or more, jumped on me, put his hands around my neck, began to strangle me and said, I will kill you. Somehow I made it out of there. I made it out of my father's office. But for years after that, I revisited those words. I revisited the feeling of his hands around my neck and didn't talk to my father for 15 years. I got married way before that. And the collateral damage was made manifest between me and my wife because I hadn't dealt with the root. My wife was eating the fruit. I was eating the fruit. I was defiling my marriage because I hadn't dealt with it. Hadn't resolved it. God began to do a work in me. I began to realize because my wife had spoken to me, I need to ask God to come and heal me. I need to ask God to help me forgive my father. And through a process of years, yes, it took years. For some of us, it might take years. But by all means, take the time that's necessary. I was able to not only forgive my father, but I found him again on the internet. Hunted him down, found him. My father passed away on August 29th, 2012, just a few months ago. I was there at his bedside holding his hand, taking his pulse until the early morning of August 29th when his heart beat its last time and the attendant was there to pronounce him dead. I looked up and I said, see you, Dad. Because nine days earlier, I had the privilege of leading my father to Christ. The man who was my adversary for so long had become someone I genuinely embraced, I loved. We embraced each other multiple times for months before he died, telling each other that we loved each other. That's not possible, humanly speaking. That's a work of the Spirit of God. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about with the damage of the root of bitterness, and you are held bondage. You're in bondage to that root of bitterness. It's creating collateral damage in your marriage. It's creating collateral damage in your whole life. People look at you, and they see an angry person. They see a bitter person, and you're affecting them. Do it for other people, if you're not good enough or reason alone, do it for God. Do you understand that a root of bitterness is also a lack of holiness? Do you understand that if you allow a root of bitterness to continue, you are allowing, you are allowing by tolerating a root of bitterness, you're allowing yourself to walk in the power of the flesh when you could walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and be free? You could be completely free, completely set free. You can be, you could be. And that's exactly what God wants to do to you. He wants to set you free. Jesus said, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. That root of bitterness no longer needs to be something where you're holding that person captive. They didn't even realize that you're holding on to that. You don't have to be creating collateral damage in other people's lives. You don't have to be in bondage. You can be literally set free by the power of God. And this is exactly what Jesus wants to do in your life because you can't do it yourself. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit couragematters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.